Welcome to part two of In Conversation with the Godfather, where I talk to Michael Beloff QC about his life in sports law. Many of your earlier cases in uh, sports law involved an argument that has perhaps long since been settled about whether sports governing bodies as private bodies are amenable to judicial review. And I wonder what you thought about the uh, recent independent review of football governance led by Tracy Crouch MP, which has recommended, and the government in the recent Queen's speech has adopted, the idea of an independent statutory regulator of football. Does that mean that whole body of law we look at where um, uh, regulators of sport are no longer uh, amenable to judicial review. Is that going to change when we have an independent regulator for football that's based on statute? I'll take this in stages. I mean, first of all, it is true, um, and it's one of the earliest cases I did in sport against the future Lord Justice Moses, about whether the British Board of Boxing Control was amenable to um, some form of judicial intervention uh, when they uh, denied a licence uh, to a, a potential official in it. Uh, and there was then a hands-off attitude by the judiciary. Sports law is best left to sporting officials rather than troubling the courts. And that decision was not the only decision. I could quote you two or three of other judges who took the same view. As you rightly say, that has moved on. The fact that the, these are private law bodies in the technical sense has not dissuaded the more modern and younger <laughs> judiciary from applying to them the principles which govern the activities of public authorities, that's to say, fairness and rationality and the like. Um, so that will remain, as it were, untouched. I mean, I can't see the fact there might be an independent regulator in one particular area is going to avoid um, that. And indeed, I've no doubt it depends how and when and if the independent regulator is constituted, he or she will also be amenable to some kind of, of judicial review. But my own view is... We have two traditions, perhaps, uh, in relation to sport. Some, for example, France or the what used to be Eastern Europe, the, the sport um, is an interventionist by government. We, in this country, have a tradition of uh, sporting bodies enjoying a considerable measure of autonomy, though, of course, it's by no means total, total because criminal law and ordinary law does uh, touch upon it. My own view is that there are arguments both ways as to whether one should have an independent regulator for football. I mean, I do think the so-called beautiful game has been developed some sort of ugly trays over the past few years in a variety of areas. I rather hope, I think it should be a remedy of last resort, and I rather hope that what will happen is that the threat of this will persuade the football um, authorities to get their own house in order, and in the end nothing will come of it. Um, given the predicament of the present administration, one has no idea whether it will be brought forward at any stage. It can't be top of the list. No, in, indeed. And I think what you're saying there is is that um, the, the approach taken in judicial review is applied to private bodies when they're making regulatory decisions, the Bradley decision and so on, um, 
The forum, though, might change. If you have a statutory independent regulator, then it may be the High Court rather than some arbitral tribunal uh, that challenges their decisions. Yes, yes. I mean, if you again, this is all um, crystal ball gazing because we don't exactly know what there's going to be. But presumably the independent regulator would have to be a statutory authority appointed under some uh, legislation. Uh, he, she would be um, amenable uh, to judicial review. But it does mean that, especially since judicial review is a remedy itself of last resort, that if there were an alternative means to resolve the dispute like an independent regulator, presumably a court faced with something would say, well, go to the independent regulator first and then let's see what happens. Yes, indeed, indeed. But I, I do wonder whether a whole whole load of new things could come up, like, for example, could could supporters groups be interested parties in challenging a decision of an independent regulator not to do something about a football club? Well, absolutely. And, of course, it's the... Um, some of the um, supporters are, are very vocal of particular clubs, and, and we know that in relation to those clubs that have gone into administration and so on, there is a lot of anxiety. Uh, equally, on the other side, uh, clubs, far from going into administration, want to um, multiply the trillions of pounds they're already in the uh, so-called um, European Super League. That, of course, agitated a great many supporters from the other um, side uh, of saying, you know, this is this is going to ruin uh, the ordinary club's um, economy, attractiveness, etc., etc. So that um, one would imagine, but again, it depends how it's set up. One would imagine that if it was an independent regulator, at the very least, supporters with a particular interest in a particular issue would lobby that regulator, whether the reg the supporters would be given sort of what we lawyers would call locus standout or sufficient interest to intervene in any adjudication that was carried out by the independent regulator, as I say, will have to depend upon the drafting. Another area of um, legal intervention, uh, a case I hadn't actually realised that you were involved in at an earlier stage, the Mecca Medina case. Yes. Um, where, uh, as a result of that case, it's, it's commonly said that sports governing bodies are subject to competition law and freedom of movement and so on. Well, what's your views about that decision? Well, I mean, freedom of movement, I think, had been already um, established in the Bosman case yes. and its, its sequences. I mean, Mecca Medina is an extraordinary case because these were two long-distance swimmers who were alleged to have had um, the, the prohibited substances in a dish known as Sabrapatel, um, some Brazilian, um, uh, I think it's a, it was boar's testicles or something, stew of that kind. And I sat twice on panels, um, on one occasion with a very distinguished um, international arbitrator, Richard McLaren. And what I do remember most was there was no evidence that these um, swimmers had actually eaten this at all. Um, and therefore, the fact that he managed to get the European Court of Justice and lay down this principle. I think I draw the analogy with Donoghue and Stevenson, huge, important principle of law laid down on facts that were never proven. But I think what one says about Mecca Medina is I, I don't see that there's anything aberrant in the notion that competition law should apply uh, to sports, certainly. And I don't see anything particularly aberrant in the fact 
that um, it, it, it had an impact it, where there was an alleged unfairness in relation to persons who were said wrongly to have been accused of doping. But I think that the European Court of Justice quite properly recognised that it might be a prima facie infringement of competition law, but the defences that are available, that we are doing this for the benefit of ensuring a, a purer sport, were also um, recognised there. Indeed. Um, one of the things you say, staying on this, this topic of the intervention of the law into sport, um, you describe the development of sports law and some of the early cases uh, and the attitude of the courts and judiciary in those cases. Uh, you cite um, the well-known um, case of McInnes and Onslow Fane, which I think you appeared in, and uh, the decision of the Vice-Chancellor, Sir Robert McGarry, in that case, where he said, uh, I think that the court should be slow to allow implied obligations to be fair to be used as a measure of bringing before the courts for review honest decisions of bodies exercising jurisdiction over sporting and other activities, which those bodies are far better fitted to judge than the courts. Now, that particular quotation um, these days rather warn that argument, isn't it? Well, it's, I mean, I, when you say the argument, I mean, it, the decision itself is obsolete. I mean, there were two other vice-chancellors, one in, involving Zola Budd, which is Nick Brown Wilkinson, and Richard Scott, um, uh, a case called Gasser, which was an athlete doping case. They both articulated identical sentiments, that is, hands off, sport is better left to the sporting authorities. And indeed, Lord Denning himself, Great Lord Denning uh, said something uh, equivalent in the in the Enderby case. So there was a kind of hands-off attitude there. But like the development of judicial review, after all, judicial review itself was ossified for a considerable number of years. And it only, as it were, took off again in the 1960s. And it didn't reach its full efflorescence until several decades after that. But it carried in its wake the notion that those principles should be applied to any powerful body of any character that is um, exercising a discretion. And that's now, as I say, uh, come into sports law, but there are even other areas where it's just said, if, if you're exercising discretion, you should exercise it fairly and rationally. Mm. One of the things that struck me reading this independent review of football, the, the Tracy Crouch review, was that they said, well, that, that this old model we have of self-regulation, of the clubs regulating themselves through the Premier League or the Football League, um, that may have all been very well for the past, but we are now dealing with far more sophisticated businesses and complex markets, complex commercial and financial markets, where the regulators may not actually, the self-regulators may not actually be the best equipped to regulate do you think they have a point? Yes, they have a point. Um, as I say, I, um, there are arguments both ways, but at the end of the day, I think it would be a step, if it were necessary, it would be a step that was inconsistent with what had hitherto been the English or British tradition of allowing sport to regulate itself. And that's why they would have to get their act together in order to head off 
this possibility of an independent regulator. And I, I did actually deal with this matter in editorial international sports story of the OMU and ask oneself, well, actually, why, why only football? Look, for example, about how the ECB didn't really deal in any coherent or sensible way with the allegations of racism in the Yorkshire Cricket Club. Athletics has had a very fraught year in terms of its administration. It's now, in fact, I think, now got some personnel who've got credibility and so on. Why not have an independent regulator in that sport? I mean, that's one of the troubles. I don't think football is unique in that way. And as I say, uh, to open the door to having regulation, I think, I mean, it is the last resort. I mean, it has one of the principles, if you ask right going back to the start, what is one of the principles, if there was one, of the Lex Sportiva or Lex Ludica, to take a more accurate classical description of it, that is that sport should not be interfered with on political grounds. Um, and uh, there are cases pending before the Court of Arbitration of Sport, which I'm inhibited from saying anything more. Where one can imagine that some of the reactions of sporting authorities, national sporting authorities, uh, to the invasion or special military operation, or whatever one chooses to call it, between Russia and Ukraine, has again involved. Well, what is is it, are these political decisions? Or are they decisions that can be justified on other grounds? I can't speak more other than no. to say that it's very much in the public domain. It, there indeed, are these it, cases. It, it is. I, I've just actually written a long article, soon to be published, on yes. politics and sport, where right. I argue that sport has always been and is always political. But of course, it depends on one's definition of politics. Exactly. We had this argument out in the poppy case was wearing the poppy a political right. symbol or not, and, and yes. so on. Um, but I'm particularly interested in this question of regulation and self-regulation and judicial intervention, perhaps in part because in football, at least, I often appear against those who uh, trot out the arguments about leaving the sports bodies to decide on themselves and being very slow to intervene and so on. And we've looked at it from that kind of um, judicial review point of view, but from a restraint of trade point of view, which has been one of the key areas for the development of sports law. Uh, I, I was just thinking um, in preparation for interviewing you, if one went back to the Esso Petroleum and Harper's Garage case, a famous restraint of trade case about the garage owners being tied to Esso Petrol for 21 years, if one imagined that the, all the oil companies turned up to court and said, hold on a minute, judge, um, we've got our own body where we regulate ourselves and what the garage owners have to do. And we've also got our own secret courts that decide on these things. You should have your hands off. The courts would say they'd laugh them out because they'd say this is a restraint of trade that affects society. Why should sport be different? Why should a cartel of clubs, if you like, determine their own rules, have their own secret arbitral bodies when they're deciding things that affect trade and matters of general public interest to a great number of people in the country? Well, I mean, it's a very powerful point. Um, the, I mean, the answer partly, surely, is that they're not, as it were, law-free. And um, if they behave in an arbitrary way, 
or something that's manifestly against the public interest, are there not already potential remedies in the courts of law? I mean, my concern about the independent regulator is, well, who is it going to be? I mean, <laughs> a superman, superwoman, or it might be someone who is no more competent and perhaps less competent than the people who are presently running the running the area. But, I mean, underlying it, you have a perfectly sound point that sport has long departed from its roots as being recreation, leisure pursuit. It's become now in the top 20 industries in the world, and that carries with it uh, obligations and it carries with it uh, the vulnerability to an intervention by the law, and the law, either the ordinary law of the land or, as is hypothesized here, by constituting an independent regulator that has teeth that can deal with what are considered to be aberrant or um, antisocial activities on the part of the clubs and personnel involved. And another case I wanted to ask you about that you talk about in the book, in part because I'd actually, uh, I have to confess, never heard about it, um, was the case you describe in 95, 96, where you acted for Tottenham Hotspurs, uh, and Spurs had been deducted 12 points by an FA panel for making various undercover payments to players. Um, and they, they had that internal process, and they lost, and then they lost their appeal, you somehow managed um, to contrive an argument that managed to get the High Court to intervene. Uh, very interesting to me. How did you do that? What was the argument? I, I, I wish I could recollect. <laughs> um, I, you're right. It does appear, with the benefit of hindsight, to be extraordinary we were able to do that. Um, I really can't. I mean, uh, there's a record somewhere, presumably, of the decision itself but that, of course, was by the time the body had actually been established, this uh, independent... I, I think that's right. I think you'd, you'd it, w it was going to go to the High Court, but yeah. probably the FA was that's so concerned right. about exactly. it, they must have agreed to an arbitration. Yes. And so and, uh, how, it, was it, how was it? I mean, we must have had some basis for threatening to go to the High Court. And I suppose reconstructing it as best as I can on a sort of without prejudice basis, because I may have it wrong, I suppose that the argument must have been that there was some defect in the procedures by which the internal bodies um, of the FA had dealt with the matter. So we would presumably then went off and said to the High Court, well, you ought to intervene, and you are quite right. That I certainly remember. The FA said, well, please, not the High Court. Could we have an arbitral tribunal? And yes. we had a very distinguished one. Um, but yes. Yes, and, and that, that certainly explains it because since then that, that there have been a couple of occasions I've had to challenge FA final appeals and the way one does it now is by a, a FA Rule K arbitration mm. applying the Bradley standard and that is no doubt a response, whether directly in there, indirectly to that case, so that the, an arbitral panel now stands in the shoes of the court. Um, and, and one just funny story that you tell in, in your chapter about that case, um, and, and it's one of these, these matters of fate that often happen to us. And I think either you or your opponent couldn't do one of the days, and so the court had to be fixed on one day or the other day, and 
one party would be deprived of their silk and you came up with a ruse because of Aussie Ardiles. Do you remember that? I do indeed. And it wasn't a ruse. I mean, before I got to the tribunal, it was Roger Parker who was the um, former Court of Appeal judge who was sitting in this case to decide how it was going to be decided. And at that stage, of course, uh, we had no idea uh, what dates would be available and who could or couldn't manage such a date. But I had noticed walking down Chancery Lane in my then chambers this banner headline in the Evening Standard saying Aussie Ardile is sacked. So when this issue about when should the panel um, sit came up, I was able to say to Roger Parker, purely by chance and purely because I'd seen this headline, it'd be a great misfortune to Spurs if they lost both their manager and their leading counsel on the same day. And Roger Parker was a fairly severe judge, but that certainly tickled his fancy <laughs> that way. And, and, and we, we got the date we wanted. And it makes a big difference often to the client, doesn't it, to have their silk on the day. Moving on then to the second part of your sports law career, Michael, you becoming one of the leading, if not the leading, arbitrators in sports law, nationally and internationally at, at CAS. I mean, first of all, what would you describe are the essential differences between being an advocate and sitting as an arbitrator? I was thinking to say tritely that it's the difference between speaking and listening, but that is so obvious as not to warrant inclusion in this. I think the, possibly the psychological difference is that if you're an advocate, you are there pursuing a particular case, and it's, as it were, a one-sided perspective. I mean, obviously you have to understand what the other side is saying, but you're going to be concentrating on persuading the tribunal that your side is right. If you're an arbitrator, you have, I think, to try to start off without any kind of preconception at all. And if nonetheless, as you often would have, you have a preconception, uh, not to show that uh, to the parties appearing in front of you, to actually be as far as you can be uh, open-minded and certainly not to give the impression that you're not prepared to listen to any particular argument. It's not as easy as it seems. And I know several judges, and talk about judges now, um, no names, no pectoral, um, who have found it quite difficult to make the move from arguing a case to adjudicating on a case. And, you know, they descend too obviously into the arena. And both as an arbitrator and a judge, I like to think that people haven't accused me of that. Although, interestingly, sitting as I have now for a quarter of a century in the Court of Arbitration for Sport, I've noticed that some of my civilian law colleagues actually dislike the idea of an arbitrator asking questions at all, uh, and which we find as common lawyers to be really extraordinary. I mean, to ask a question is not the same as saying, I think what you're saying is complete rubbish. It ought to be phrased in such a way as, I would like some help with this, please. Absolutely. And, and, and speaking as an advocate, when I appear in front of an arbitrator who asks me questions, even and often exactly because they are difficult and challenging questions, it's helpful because you know the areas that you need to persuade the arbitrator on. And, and when you're appearing in front of one who just sits and listens, it's very difficult to know what to say. I absolutely agree with you. I'm, I'm going to 
go on to those challenges in a moment of, uh, about being seen to be fair and so on. But um, one thing I, I've sat only a few occasions as an arbitrator, but I think one of the benefits of it, there's many benefits, and obviously you, you hopefully learn when you sit uh, to be a better advocate as well. But one of the other benefits, in my view, is that it can be less stressful because being an advocate is so much often trying to demolish your opponent and your opponent trying to demolish you. It can be so antagonistic that to have an engagement with the law and the argument without having to have some of that sometimes, unfortunately, personal animosity which comes with a tightly forked case uh, can be a bit of a relief, I think. Yes. Um, I mean, I suppose the only qualification I would make is that at the end you have to make a decision uh, to which one side or the other is going to take umbrage. I mean, not obviously necessarily in personal terms. They will be disappointed. And that obviously imposes on you a stress. Get the thing as right as you can. Yes. And yes. especially if you're the corporate of sport with virtually unappealable except the Swiss Federal Tribunal. And then over it, you committed some extraordinary procedural betise. Um, it imposes a, an obligation on you. Yes. Now, in in your book, um, you talk about the Newcastle apparent bias challenge. Um, and I shall tread very carefully here asking you about this because um, I was the advocate instructed to make that challenge to you in the High Court. And um, I did so on the Monday of the week. And I don't know if you recall, but on the Friday of the same week, I had to appear before you as an arbitrator in another high-profile challenge to a football regulator. It was the EFL salary cap case, where you were appointed as an arbitrator by the regulator, and I was against the regulator. And in fact, it was the same solicitors and so on on the other side. And so you might imagine that I approached the prospect of appearing before you in that case, having... Um, just been instructed to make the challenge to you on apparent bias uh, a few days earlier with some trepidation. Uh, but in fact, you were, if if I can say so, scrupulous, scrupulously fair. Um, you asked both me and my opponent, as I would expect, all the important and interesting questions and difficult ones. And you did so with your normal charm. Um, I don't expect every judge or arbitrator who's just had been on the receiving end of an apparent bias challenge would have reacted in the same way. Um, and I'm interested to know how you managed to do that. Well, I mean, since you are asking me and being entirely honest, as you would expect me, it frankly never perturbed me at all. I mean, you know, that's what happens. I do find with great respect. I mean, I've been the subject of apparent bias challenges almost in double figures in front of the court rather than the sport. It seems to be now endemic. Um, that, And I never quite understand why, because unless you actually believe the person is going to be biased, why do you take the point? Now, almost all of them um, have failed. Um, uh, once was a, a, actually involved a member of these chambers who simply hadn't noticed who came in late to the case and I just simply hadn't noticed that and therefore hadn't disclosed it. It was more an issue of non-disclosure than of anything else. And the only other one, <laughs> I said, was challenged by Seth Blatter and the fact that that challenge succeeded uh, might be said to be more to my credit than 
my disgrace. <laughs> but coming back to the um, the other point, yes, so I mean, there it is. You know that it's being done, and it it happens, and people are entitled to do it. And in the end, they lost. But if they'd won, I wouldn't have taken umbrage against the person who advanced the argument. Anyhow, I probably would have admired them for succeeding. Um, I, I didn't actually think it was likely to succeed, but you never know. It wasn't perhaps as easy as, as I thought it might have been. Well, talking about another case, then, um, a very important case, um, the, the Peckstein decision of the European Court of Human Rights, um, where in that case they found, uh, to summarise it very briefly, of course, that, that because Claudia Peckstein's right to a fair trial was engaged in the sort of doping appeal that she had before Cass, that meant that she had a right to a public hearing. Uh, now, that, that's something quite antithetical to a lot of English jurists, um, and one can remember that the Stretford case against the FA in the Court of Appeal, which had a similar argument that lost. What's your view on that Peckstein decision of the European Court of Human Rights? Well, in principle, I have no objection at all. I think if people's careers are at stake and their reputations are at stake, they ought to be able to be satisfied that they are being dealt with fairly. And the extent to which, as it were, not just them being present in the arbitration room, but as it were, a world, a world outside, imposes or might be thought to impose even more strenuous obligations on the particular arbitral panel to behave itself. I mean, that's why, I mean, that's the point of open justice altogether, that if it's closed, people may misbehave in an arbitral or judicial capacity. If they are sitting, as it were, in public, uh, then the discipline on them by virtue of that publicity, is the greater. I mean, just anecdotally, there was one case previous to the Peckstein case in which the Cass panel, which by pure fortuity I happened to sit, was made public because both parties agreed. This was the Michelle Smith case, the, the red-headed Irish Olympic multi-medalist. <laughs> Unfortunately, at that stage, it didn't excite so much interest um, that uh, anyone actually attended. I think I may be a, a couple of people at the back who probably wandered in on the base. They didn't know what was going to be happening. I would have been involved in a much more high-profile now case, the Sun Yang case, the Chinese, the PRC star swimmer. Um, and I, but I recused myself because if I hadn't recused myself, the decision wouldn't have been able to be handed down before the Olympics. It was very important to get the decision one way or the other before then. That was widely publicised, and of course, as a result of being widely publicised, there's been a great deal of commentary on it, but I can't see that there's anything wrong with that. Um, so my instincts, I think, are in favour of open justice, where those criteria of, of the person's reputation and indeed career at stake are satisfied. I think it. I think it's right. Anyhow, it I, is now the law. It is now the law for 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 Cass or or at the European level. I, I'm very interested to hear that, and it reminds me somewhat of listening to another podcast interview that um, Law in Sport did with Lord Dyson after his decision in the Saracens case. Now, it's a, it's a different kind of case because it was not about um, an individual's right to work. 
but it was of wider importance because it was about the legitimacy of the salary cap and so on. And he expressed the, the strong personal view that the decision ought to be published, and it was subsequently published. But this is one of the difficulties with uh, arbitration in sport, isn't it? Because traditionally, arbitration is all about confidentiality and so on. But in sport, it's it, it's quite different. You have often appeals to CAS. You have not entirely a proper system of precedent, but you look at other decisions in the way one doesn't in pure commercial arbitration. So one needs a slightly different approach when we're dealing with sport, don't we? Well, I mean, the answer, I think, is yes. I mean, having said that, I think Pechstein is right. <laughs> Even if I said it was wrong, it wouldn't make any difference. But if I think it's right, and that probably is affected by what... Um, I mean, it... <laughs> You could make the same argument, I'm now backtracking a little, the same argument for saying that um, all arbitration should be in public, but then the parties usually agree to it here. I mean, that's the point. Both sides in a big commercial dispute, they don't want, they want to know. Their washing may be dirty, it may be clean. That's what the arbitral panel is going to decide. But they would prefer it, I think, to be private. In sport, I think the more important thing, and particularly with the Court of Arbitration for Sport, is that... Not all its decisions are published, and uh, it's not quite clear to me what the decision is as to which are going to be published or not. Of course, CAS doesn't have a system of precedent, and therefore you might say, well, it doesn't really matter so much because every case could be decided its own merits. But, I mean, sitting as an arbitrator, one does get considerable benefit if there have been cases deciding the same or similar issues previously, um, from looking at them. I mean, either they help or they don't help, but to have the possibility of access to them, I think, is important, and important, again, for advocates. I mean, it is, a, it is an issue with CAS, what, what happens? I mean, it's not like you or when you now and I, as I used to, I mean, appearing in front of a body and saying, well, there's this case, and this is how it applies to the facts before us. In CAS... When authorities are cited, they were either usually cited in the written pleadings or just referred to an oral argument without actually being presented and just saying, you'll find it in this, that and the other. Again, it may just be because we're common lawyers and we find that unusual. Mm. Well, I, I want to end this fascinating discussion, with Michael, with the last paragraph of your chapter, My Sporting Life, in your book, um, where you say this about your sports practice. You say, the coincidence, the, the coincidence of my profession and my passion has not only enabled me to travel the world, but to meet with many heroes and heroines of my childhood, and I confess of my more mature years, both from home and abroad. And although sports law was for most of my career only a fraction of my practice, it has given me more pure delight, as well as free tickets, than the rest of it put together. Now, that's an extraordinary thing to say about someone with such a wide practice. Why do you say that? Well, when you come to think of it, I mean, I did in a lot of commercial law, I did a lot of media law, I did all kinds of things. I didn't do any criminal law and I did very little family law. But you ask yourself, well, are you actually passionate about commerce? Are you even passionate particularly about constitutional matters? Are you passionate about um, 
contract? I mean, the answer is no, they, they don't on the whole. I mean, they, they engage your curiosity, they engage your intellectual interest and so on. But, you know, the, I mean, you're a great enthusiast and a particular specialist in a particular sporting area. You know sport grabs people. Uh, that's why it is actually of importance, and that's why I mean, much of the theme of our discussion has been why the law has to intervene to a certain extent. But for me, as I say, I mean, it is quite extraordinary that having started from virtually childhood being passionate about track and field, I haven't actually explained in the book why that was so, but I, I, and then to find myself at the end of the day the first chair of the ethics board and the, um, the disciplinary tribunal of world athletics, as it's now called. I mean, it's a sort of pilgrimage in which one didn't realize was going to end in the promised land. Well, thank you very much, Michael. It's been a fascinating discussion. And I, and I'm certainly sure everybody listening uh, will be extremely grateful for that insight. Thank you. Thank you for listening to part two of In Conversation with the Godfather on the Sports Law Podcast. In the next episode, we'll be talking about football agents, what they do, and the important legal issues relevant to football agents. I'll be joined by a panel of experts, football agents, and lawyers who will talk to you about the area. So make sure you subscribe to the Sports Law Podcast from Blackstone Chambers with me, Nick DeMarco.